Glory to you, Lord Christ. Beginning with the 36th verse of the 24th chapter. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they had saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts always be acceptable in thy sight, for thou art our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Why are we here? What's life all about? Is God really real, or is there some doubt? And if a song has started to play in your head, that's from the beginning theme song of Monty Python's The Meaning of Life. Might be before some of your time. Actually, it's barely in my time, 1983. 
Our world is confused about the meaning of life, right? We ask these questions as a, as a culture. And of course, as that movie goes on, and it's not a great movie, I'm not commending it to you, but as that movie goes on, it goes through all the different things that people seek after. If anything, it's a great illustration of what a lost people looks like. Is life all about money? Is life all about business? Is life all about sex? Is life all about pleasure? Is life all about power? Those are just, you know, some of the vignettes that come throughout that movie. And, you know, we don't have to watch a movie to see this, right? All we have to do is open the newspaper. We see clear illustration or, or bring up our news feed on our iPhones. We see clearly illustrated people that struggle for power or to secure money or to identify sex or some other pleasure as their primary form of happiness. And there's one thing that Christians should have, and that's perspective, the long game. That these things that everybody searches after are fleeting. That shouldn't be what we search after. The truth is, however, that the noise of life is difficult, isn't it? That it can be overwhelming and confusing to live in this world and that live as a follower of Jesus. To want to walk as a child of the light and yet have darkness being shouted at you from every direction. You know, sometimes we think that we're the first to do this. And that's why I love looking at our Old Testament readings because the prophet Micah is dealing with the same thing. If you have your Bibles with you, open with me to Micah in the Old Testament. Or you can look at it in the text, the uh, insert that came with your service booklet. Looking at the first reading from the Old Testament, Micah chapter 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. Here we have a look at the end game. A look at the thing that establishes perspective and context for us as God's chosen people. Part of his people. Micah of Moretha, Moresheth, as he's known, his prophecy here found in the book of Micah is all about life in the 700s BC in the kingdom of Judah. He speaks through the reign of several kings, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, those might ring a bell to you if you've been reading the Old Testament recently. And this isn't the full picture for the preceding three chapters, if you have your Bibles open, is quite another picture, isn't it? Chapters 1 through 3, Micah brings charges against God's people. What's striking is that reading the book of Micah is not that different than reading the news today. Let me just give you a couple snippets, a couple vignettes, if you will. Micah's chastising God's people because they fall into idolatry. In chapter 1, verse 7, we read, 
All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. All her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. We also see a thirst for power. Chapter 2, verse 1. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it's the pow- in the power of their hand. There's a seizure of private property in chapter 2 as well. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Then there's the abuse of those in power, the abuse of the political leaders in chapter 3, verse 9. Hear this, says Micah, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. You see, it's all there. What you read today is nothing new. It's all been there. It's all happened. Wickedness and evil in this world can make us question the meaning of life and the goodness and justice of God. But Bible, the Bible-reading Christian ought to know that it's nothing new and ought not to be phased by it. Not that we shouldn't be upset by it, but it ought not shake our faith. God is not mocked. God responds to such things. Verse 12 of chapter 3 in Micah, right before our reading, reads this way. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. There's a drastic shift, though, between the first three chapters and chapter four. It's noted with the phrase, it shall come to pass, as we read. It shall come to pass, says God. The reality of this world, while out of control, is not out of God's control. Notice, it shall come to pass, says the Lord. Not, maybe it'll come to pass. Not, perhaps things will be made right in the distance. But it shall come to pass, is the promise. That the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up as the hills. And the people shall flow to it. What is being talked about here? Well, here Micah is prophesying Jesus. Here Micah is prophesying Jesus up on that hilltop on the cross. And here Micah is also prophesying that on that same hilltop will Jerusalem, heavenly Jerusalem, come down to this world. And this world will pass away and that world will win. And notice, what happens? How do we know that this hasn't happened already? Well, verse 2 talks about the voluntary worship of all nations, where the nations say to themselves, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. Well, on Pentecost, all nations came, but not all received. So it's only partially been fulfilled. And God's judgment will be seen as a good thing, The man who settles all disputes, look at verse 3 in today's reading, chapter 4, verse 3. 
He, that is God, shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up its sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Well, that hasn't happened. That certainly hasn't happened. But we look forward to it in the coming kingdom. Finally, there'll be peace and prosperity in verses 4 and 5. But they shall sit, every man under a vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. There's that promise again. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And I'm tempted to say, perhaps you were at the end of that reading, Amen! Amen! That will be a wonderful time. That will be a joyous thing. Won't it? You see, as Christians, we live in something that's been promised, something that has been paid, but something that's not yet fully manifest, not yet fully shown forth. We see glimpses of the heavenly kingdom, and the kingdom of God is here in Jesus and in us, And yet it has not been fully culminated, not fully brought about. The only way that these things happen is for God to completely change the warped desires and hearts of people. For Jesus to send his Holy Spirit into people, to change people, so that they are no longer coveting these things like power, sex, and Money and all of those distractions. It's not something that you can just choose against. The deck is stacked against you. Our natures are stacked against us because of the fall. The Holy Spirit has to correct those things in us. And it's when that happens, when Jesus returns, the culmination of all things, that the worship of God, of all people, the the embracing of peace of all people, The prosperity of all people will come, but it won't come out of force. It'll become because the Holy Spirit's brought us there and Jesus has returned to us. Look with me now at what the Apostle John writes to we on this side of the cross as the people of God. This is our second reading, the epistle reading. The same John who writes the gospel writes this book from Ephesus in 85 AD, shortly after Christ ascended. Verses 5 and 6 of chapter 1 of 1 John read this way. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. We do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Do you see it's the action of the living Christ that cleanses us and makes all of this possible? What's the contrast that John is drawing here? Not a trick question. Anybody shout it out? What's the contrast John's drawing here? 
I want to walk as a child of the... And what's the opposite of light? Darkness, right. So John is drawing us particularly into this contrast, this metaphoric imagery of light and darkness, of good and evil. And notice what accompanies that walking in the light. Did you catch it? It's there. What accompanies this walking in the light? One, nine. Yeah, bingo. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness. If we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. So what's the first The first step is that confession of sin, that cleansing, so that we can have fellowship. Right. Fellowship occurs time and time again in this letter. Look with it. Just, just, I know some of you have your Bibles open, some of you don't, but maybe you did a Bible study and, and you see this. But if you have your Bibles open and a pencil or pen with you, underline verse 3. Fellowship with us, John says. Then again, And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And then look down at verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Verse 7. If we walk in the light and he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Fellowship, fellowship, fellowship. What's fellowship? John's glad you asked. It's, co- it's in the Greek koinonia. And it's not some like, you know, coffee hour, lame fellowship that lots of churches practice where, hey, how was your week? Oh, my week was all right. And you just have a sip of coffee and you head out the door. That's not what's being talked about here. What's being talked about here is a deep fellowship, union with, it can be translated, participating with, joint participation, communion is another way to translate this. Fellowship, fellowship. John makes the point to the church as he writes here to Ephesus that if they want to be walking in the light, if they want to be following Jesus, if they want to have fellowship with Jesus, they have to have fellowship with each other. And the only way to have fellowship with each other is to have fellowship with Jesus. You see, it's this kind of loop that in Jesus we're cleansed so that we can be real with each other, so that we can be in community with each other. John's making this point because he knows that it's the core of what the church has to be. You know, you're either in Jesus and in light, or you're not, and you're in darkness. There's no halfway. It's kind of like being pregnant. There's no half pregnant, right? You're either in or you're not. In or you're out. No compromise. 1 John Chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, he continues, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's some serious words. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but from the world. And here's the long game. Verse 17, the world is passing away along with with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
You see, that's where that promise in the last days is extended to you and to me. That we're part of that forever in Christ. Do you see, the Holy Word of God today is not calling us to some ethereal fire insurance of tomorrow. Not just, you know, putting your faith in Jesus so that, you know, when you come to the end of the line and you take your last breath, you'll be in heaven. That's not what this is about, although that's important. What this is about is that these are true and actual things that stick with us, that are in us, that the Holy Spirit wants to grow through us so that we can show forth them to others. It is to be our context. It is to be our perspective to live life differently than the world. It is to be our context and to be our perspective to have true fellowship with each other because that true fellowship with each other is what buttresses our fellowship with God. That's what John's saying. And because the darkness of this world will seep in and will change you and corrupt you, if it's not being pushed against by something else. That's what John's saying. That's what Micah is saying. We don't live as Christians, as people grasping about in the dark, wondering what the meaning of life is or what the purpose of it all is. We know it. We know it's Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, that John says at the beginning of this epistle, he has seen, he has touched, he has eaten with. This is worked out in our lives in a variety of ways, this being united to Christ. For some people, it's in music. Well, it's in missionary work. For some, it's in teaching or preaching. But there is one end and one purpose. And yes, we live in constant tension with the world, the flesh, and the devil, those things that we cast out at our baptism. But what does this practically look like to you? Everything we read, watch, and say, do, and think in this world, in our lives, needs to be measured by God's commandment and sanctified by his grace. We need to live in fellowship with Jesus first and foremost, but then also in fellowship with one another. So I want to ask you today to ask yourself three questions. Number one, what is my perspective on life? What is my perspective on life? What's the meaning of life might be another way to put it for me. Is it skewed too much to the world's priorities? Number two, how am I in fellowship with Jesus and the church? Go ahead, take a minute, list them out in your head. How am I in fellowship, in union with Jesus and the church? And don't say, don't count the things you do for the church. This is not the tasks. It's not the fact that you're an usher or a lay reader or providing Bible study. How am I in fellowship with Jesus and the church? And question number three, how am I in fellowship with my fellow Christians at Lakewood Anglican? 
How am I in fellowship with my fellow Christians? Anglican. How are we walking together forward? How familiar am I with the person in the pew next to me? Or in front of or behind me? Do I know their names? Do I know their problems? Do I know how to encourage them? How to be Jesus to them? Ask yourself, how can I build a better relationship with them? And here's something to challenge you. Do you have a better relationship with your coworker than you do with the person in the pew? Do you have a better relationship with your coworker than you do with the person in the next pew? Why? Is the coworker part of the body of Christ? Maybe. That's a wonderful thing. But if you have a deeper relationship with a person at work or at a bar or at a club than you do here, there's a problem. There's a problem. And John, the apostle, wants to address that problem. He says, if you want to be in union with Christ, be in union with one another. We should not be surprised when our faith slackens in isolation. And when darkness of the world creeps into us and starts changing who we are, because ultimately that perspective and that living of life together or in isolation is what forms you and me. I'm not saying you have to be at church all the time. Don't hear that. That's not, that's not the point here. I'm not saying you have to be at every meeting. I'm just saying, how are we intentional about being in relationship with each other? We have to ask ourselves that daily. So what's your story? Which perspective do you take? Are you asking, why am I here? What's life all about? Is God really real or is there some doubt? Are you walking around in darkness? Or is your story this? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, considering the word of life, the life was made manifest and we proclaim it to you also. Which perspective are you living with today? Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you call us out of darkness into marvelous light. We thank you, Lord, that you've called us together. We ask that you would work in our hearts with your Holy Spirit, that you would cause us to have more desire for you and for your people, that we would love you more, that we'd want to see you more, that we would be firmly planted as your people here in Lakewood and in our individual and corporate lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.